Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 55. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. Lead us into truth. Lead us into light. Fill our hearts with your love and our lives with your renewing, redeeming, restoring power. We approach this season from so many different perspectives with hope, with joy, with fear, with confusion, with sorrow, exhaustion, with faith, and with doubt. However we find ourselves now, help us to see that you know us, you see us in all our complexity, all the details of our lives, and your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. As we 
meditate on, reflect on, receive this vulnerable baby in a manger and consider that that is the author of all creation stooping down low to become one of us. Help us to see, to trust, to believe that you would stop at nothing to restore everything. And so we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. Pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, this is always an interesting season. This season right now of Advent, of preparation for Christmas. Because for many of us, as we said earlier, this is a season of joy. This is the season of parties. This is the season of looking for that perfect, ugly sweater. So when you walk in the door, your friends can say, that's the best ugly sweater I've ever seen. This is the season of vacations and ski weeks, end-of-year bonuses. This is a good part of the year for many of us. And for many of us, this is the part of the year that's the hardest I was taking my sons out to lunch the other day, that little end of the year, beginning of Christmas break, lunch at Pete's Seafood over here. And I could hear the woman behind me as we're celebrating their accomplishments, and fit, you know, Benjamin finishing finals and all that. I could hear this woman say to her companion at the table, I am not well. And my heart broke. She went on to say, I am not well. I'm not doing so badly I'm going to hurt myself, but sometimes I think about it. There's joy and there's sorrow. There's, and there's hope and then there's just absolute depression. For many of you, I know that this is the time of year where a loss of a loved one or the distance of a relationship that used to be close but now it's not and you can't call that person or you don't want to talk to that person anymore. It only makes the bright lights and the tinsel and the celebrations that much more obnoxious or that much more difficult in this Advent season. And we hold all of that together. We weep with those who weep. We celebrate with those who celebrate. And today we consider what Advent means in the midst of the highs and lows of our life. To be someone who is watching and waiting, which is the Advent verbs, watching and waiting actively. Let's consider this passage we just heard, which is often called the Magnificat. Mary's great manifestation of God's grace in her life. But I want you to remember, this is not a woman who is going from victory to victory, who has the nursery already set with a really expensive fancy stroller, and everything's going to go great for her. This is an unwed woman in the ancient Near East, who is probably around 14, 15 years old, who does not have a plan facing a pregnancy. It's in that sort of desperation, that sort of difficulty, we get these words today. So let's consider them, and just consider that Advent brings you a question, it brings you an answer, and it brings you an invitation. First, Advent brings you a question. Because the context is Mary is going to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth will become the mother of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says all of these amazing things. Right? As soon as you walked in, the child in my womb was leaping, was doing somersaults in my womb. 
And she exclaims, blessed are you, Mary, among women. Blessed is the baby who's growing in your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why has this happened to me? That's the question. What is the meaning of all of this? What is the meaning of all the joy you experience? What is the meaning of all of your striving in this world? What is the meaning of all the heartbreak that we face? What's the meaning of your existence? Kathy, thanks for reminding us that in our fast-paced world, whether we are high schoolers seeing La Jolla for one of the first times or grown-ups who've been there plenty of times, we don't stop and ask the deeper questions, paying attention to our own lives. Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living, but examining our lives is one of the last things we do. We examine our jobs, We examine our physical appearance. We examine the car we drive. We examine other people's lives. We examine other people's lives who we don't know on Twitter more than we examine our own lives sometimes. We either make ourselves numb with just more entertainment or we frantically rush from thing to thing. The last thing we do is ask, what is the meaning of this moment? in your life. There's a theologian named James Houston who talks about the Desert Fathers and Mothers, which was a protest movement against the worldliness of the early church. We're talking about before the internet. We're talking about before the printing press. We're talking about the fourth century. And speaking of these Desert Fathers and Mothers, James Houston reminds us that they spoke of busyness as moral laziness. As long as you keep things spinning out there, you can neglect everything that's going on in here. Busyness can also be an addictive drug, which is why its victims are increasingly referred to as workaholics. Busyness acts to repress our inner fears and personal anxieties as we scramble to achieve an enviable image to display to others. We become outward people, obsessed with how we appear, rather than inward people, reflecting on the meaning of our lives. And the Advent wisdom says, slow down, reflect, examine your conscience. And not just ask the question of meaning, ask it in the right places. Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, Plato said the unexamined life is not worth living, but what if the examined life turns out to be a clunker as well? (laughs) It's not just ask the question, it's ask it in the right places. So where do you look to answer the question of meaning in your life. Do you look to your own experience of pleasure and happiness? I think that's one of the refrains of our beautiful city, San Diego, the land of the eternal vacation, the land of the eternal happy hour. Maximize pleasure, maximize entertainment, minimize pain, that's the most important thing. You realize that's not neutral, that's doing something to you and to me. How do you answer the question of meaning? Is it keeping up with others in life? Whether you're comparing yourself to their Instagram photos or their LinkedIn profile, whether it's the outward appearance or the achievements that you have or the things that you own, success becomes key. Comparison becomes the default drive. You always know if you're one up or one down and it's driving you to anxiety. 
What does how you spend your time tell you about where you find meaning? What do your motivations tell you? Why do you have the career that you have? Why do you spend time with the people you associate with? Why do you go to the parties you go to? Why do you work as hard as you do or not work as hard as you don't? What do your fears teach you about meaning? We fear losing most what matters to us most. What do your fears teach you about meaning in your life? Or what are the voices that give you meaning? Maybe it's the voice of a parent from when you were a child. Maybe it's the voice of your inner critic or the voice of your friends. Years ago on Philosophy Talk, it's this show on NPR, they asked 200 Californians what is the meaning of life. And there, there were some pretty funny answers. There were some cute ones. There were probably a few philosophy majors who gave some pretty erudite, sophisticated answers. But the conclusion of the article was, we don't know how to figure out meaning in our life. So we give life meaning, but it has no intrinsic meaning. We assign meaning to it, but it doesn't have meaning in and of itself. This, they labeled us inveterate meaning makers. In another article written years ago by a pastor named Dick Keyes, he said, if we try to make something finite, fill the place that only God can fill, we will try to extract an unrealistic level of meaning from that idol, he says. If you take something finite and you try to extract something infinite as meaning, it'll be unrealistic. And so when it doesn't work, it invites us to try harder. Next time it'll work. It's not this relationship, it'll be the next relationship. It's not this job, it'll be the next job. It's not this, it'll be more. The answer is always more. And when it doesn't work, we try harder. It should not surprise us in a deeply idolatrous society that books on codependency and addiction form a growth industry. People feel enslaved to substances, to unwanted behavior, and to each other. The idol, that thing that takes the place of God, begins as a means of power, enabling us to control, but then it, then it overpowers controlling us. And Advent says, are you aware of where you find meaning and what it's doing to you? It asks you a deep question. And it commends to you an answer. Because when you ask the big questions, who am I? Do I matter? Do I have significance? The gospel comes and answers it. But let's be candid. We have reasons to say the story that the gospel commends to us the story of God becoming one of us so that we can become one with God, the story of God's grace and mercy flowing into our lives, as good as that may sound, we have reasons to not want to believe it. It's not a neutral claim. Have you ever considered? I, I talk to plenty of friends who say, you know, I don't believe that stuff, I don't even want to hear about it, but oftentimes my friends are saying, I'm terrified that it might be true. Because if it's true, it means I give up control of my life. And nobody wants to give up control of their life. Nobody tells you what to do. So just know that there are programs in the operating system of our minds and our hearts already operating 
to put up little walls, little barriers, or big ones, to filter this out. It's not neutral. We avoid the claims of Christmas because on the other hand, maybe you feel too far from God. You're saying, the things that I've done to myself or to others, the ways that I have walked away, I am too far gone to be brought back. So we put up walls. I can't believe it. It's not for me. Or maybe you've been hurt by a community of Christians who proclaimed a beautiful gospel story of a God who renews and restores all things and all people and then used that gospel and weaponized it to hurt you or someone you love. And for that I say I apologize on behalf of the church. And we're actively working for reconciliation and renewal. Or maybe you've experienced grief and loss that are so deep it shouts at you so loudly you just cannot hear or consider anything else. It's like slamming your thumb with a hammer and it just throbs and hurts so much you can't feel anything else except it's not your thumb, it's your heart. We have reasons for not listening to the gospel story. And that's where you consider the source. Mary, this, unyoung, this young unwed mother from nowhere, from Nazareth, who was poor. And how did she find meaning in the midst of all the confusion and everything that was shaken up in her life and in the world, by the way? Remember, the Roman Empire was crushing her people. So politically, socioeconomically, geographically, in every way, she was on the underside of history. And how does she make meaning? How does she find meaning in this moment? She sees herself, she sees her story take place in the much bigger story of God's redemption and love. Let's make that specific. First, she looks back and then she looks forward. She locates her story in the context of God's much bigger story. She looks back in verses 51 through 54, remembering the things that God has done in the past. God has shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the powerful, lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his people in remembrance of his mercy. She lo- what does it look like to locate your story in the context of God's much bigger story? There's a big difference between longing for meaning in a vacuum and longing for meaning in the context of God's grand narrative. Which means, to be a Christian means to sophisticate your worldview, to see your life in the context of a much bigger story, to stretch your arms, your mind, your heart as wide as they can go and expand your worldview and see yourself in the context of history going somewhere. You see your life in the context of God's bigger story and you see God's bigger story in the context of your life. You look, you recognize, you remember where God is at work. So first she looks back and she remembers all these things that God has done and then she looks forward and realizes it's personal. It's, the gospel comes to you and is not just a story about a good God who has done good things and one day will do good things again in general. It is a story about a good God who knows you in particular 
and moves toward you. Note the language Mary uses in verse 47. She talks about God and then calls God personally, my Savior. Verse 49, that mighty one has done great things for me. What if it is true that God doesn't just love humanity in general, but God loves you in particular? Through all the heartbreak, through all your joy, God sees it and knows it and moves toward you now. That's what Advent means. Advent means coming. The incarnation is God becoming one with us, which tells us that God's glory enters into our questions, our sorrows, our difficulties, the mundane parts of life, all of it. And so a Christian says, where has God been at work in my life? Where have I seen God show up? I was so grateful to have Kathy share a story from Urban Life and how God is showing up in the life of students in our neighborhoods. At our Renew Church staff meeting every week, one of the first agenda items is stories of God at work. Where has God shown up? Where has God shown up in your life? Where do you need to remember? Advent brings this answer to the question of meaning. God is at work. You're a part of God's history of redemption, which means that your circumstances matter. That your work is significant. That the world is full of meaning because God has created it and is restoring it. And how do you know? You look in that manger. Where God doesn't just tell you, but God shows you that the all-powerful, ever-knowing, ever-creative author of your life has taken on vulnerability. A God who knows what it's like to be cold, to be hungry, to be alone. A God who knows what it's like to be alone. And a God who does something about it. Realize that when you contemplate that baby in the manger, you are also contemplating the source, the power of life for the entire cosmos. This is part of what Elizabeth is getting at in verse 43. She talks about the Lord, which was one of the words for God. The Lord is in Mary's womb. And in verse 45, the Lord has made a promise in the past. Which one is the Lord? And the answer is yes, both. That baby in a manger is the Lord of the universe. Come into your life and into this world. And so it gives you an invitation. The first is to receive. That might be the hardest thing for us to do, to actually receive that God loves you this much, that God moves toward you right now. You see, the word gospel in, in the Greek, euangelion, it means good news. Primarily, the gospel is not good advice, not a good example for you to emulate, not good teachings for you to obey, not good ethical and moral principles. It is all of that, but it's not primarily that. The gospel is primarily good news. 
that God has done something in human history, that God has entered into space and time, and that changes everything. The gospel is good news, that God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this is the way the early Christians proclaimed it. They had two major proclamations. Jesus Christ is Lord. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like, because he is God, one in being with the Father. And Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and death shall not have the last word in this world. And they lived by those two proclamations. Everything flows from that. New creation has begun. And so our mission is to receive that kind of love and peace and grace and reflect it out into this world. So let me just consider with you two ways to actively wait. And by the way, all of these build on each other. So these are four weeks of Advent. We've been talking about watching and waiting. First week was scripture. Second week was engaging with prayer. Third week was living lives of generosity. And today we look at actively watching and waiting through our proclamation and our actions, through our words and through our deeds. So there's a word that's probably been tarnished in the last 5, 10, 20 years, evangelism. It's a way of talking about what you proclaim. Really, it has the same root as gospel, so evangelism is sharing the gospel. That's what it's supposed to mean. It's taken on all sorts of other meanings. It means to proclaim good news. And here's the challenge that I'd make to you. The question is, everybody's life proclaims something. What's the story that your life proclaims? Is it good news? Who are the people around you that God has put near you for you to have words of truth and grace and life for them? And what would that look like between now and Christmas Day, seven days from now? Word and deed. Mercy and justice, which is really the gospel in action. It's what it looks like when it comes. This is what Mary is talking about in verse 52, lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things. That renewal doesn't just come in the abstract, it comes in the particular, and it moves toward those who do not have enough, who are pushed down or pushed out. This is what the prophet Micah was saying. He has told you, O people, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to live justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What do your actions portray about this coming kingdom of renewal? And so let's put all this together. Maybe this will be part of the tone of 2023 for us as a church to live lives marked by these five hallmarks of being people who receive the story through scripture, who interact with it through prayer, who allow it to mold our hearts to be generous and then pour ourselves out through our words and through our actions in this world. What would that look like for you? What would that look like for us as a church? Let us be like Mary who when she received the good news that she would be the mother of Jesus, said, let it be to me as you say. Let us receive Christ this Christmas and reflect his light into this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now that you'd fill us with your light and with your life. Give us a sense of calling now by the power of your Holy Spirit for the words that you call us to say. 
for the good news that you invite us to embody through our actions. Make us a people whose words and actions match up, line up with your coming kingdom of renewal. And as we began acknowledging the mixture of both joy and sorrow in this season, I pray, Lord, particularly that you would send out your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to comfort those who mourn, to be with those who grieve, to care for those who are experiencing loss. And as you do, would you send us out into this world to do likewise? I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.